Lord, we just come to you today and we ask that you open our eyes, Lord, to the glorious scenes that we're going to see as, as we go through heaven's door and into your throne room through this, via this text in Revelation chapter 4, Lord. And as we look at these scenes, Lord, I, I, I think the message is clear and the message is, is that, Lord, we should all have the right perspective about just who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Lord, that you truly are God, that, that you truly, you came to serve us, you came to die for us, but now, Lord, it's our turn to serve you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you uh, take this passage today and, and help us to see our place in the kingdom of God as we look upon your throne, as we see who you are, as we see you in all of your glory. Lord, uh, words can't express what, uh, what heaven is like, but John did the best job he possibly could, and Lord, help me to do the best job I possibly can to, to uh, look at these truths and try to find their meaning. And Lord, we just, we just want to draw closer to you as we worship you through your word today. So I just ask that you bless our study by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite uh, Christian groups is a band called Casting Crowns, and I never had given much thought to where they came up with that title, but after studying for this text and looking at the end of chapter 4 of Revelation, there's no doubt that they got that title from this passage that we're going to look at today. This idea that you see these 24 elders casting their thrones before the throne of Jesus, and that's a picture of what we should be doing. Uh, we should be casting our crowns before the throne of Jesus too. And so uh, we, God has taken us, uh, using John as our tour guide, into the very throne room of Jesus Christ, and uh, so far, he's shown us some wonderful things. I mean, the first thing we saw when we came to, to into heaven, as John took us into heaven, was that the door to heaven was wide open. And that tells us very clearly that anyone can come in, but you have to come through the door. And the door is none other than Jesus Christ. And there's no other door in which you can enter heaven. But that door is wide open for anyone. And we saw this wide open door and as we came into the throne room, we saw the most important thing, the most magnificent thing we could possibly see, and that was the very throne room, the very throne of God. And on that throne sat one whom we know, and we're going we're gonna to give some more evidence for that, or see some more evidence for that today, none other than Jesus Christ. And around that throne, were seated around that throne, were 24 elders on thrones, worshiping God. And and uh, we're going to see some more or get some more information about those elders today. And on the throne, we saw the rock of ages. None other, as I said earlier, none other than Jesus Christ. And he wasn't just any rock. He was like a jasper stone, like a diamond, like a, a ruby red diamond. And that ruby red color uh, speaks of the blood that he shed for us on the cross. And above the throne was this green, or still is, it's there now, it's there forever, is this green halo of light. And proceeding forth from the throne are lightnings and thunderings and voices. And we know from that scene that something is about 
to happen on earth. And what's about to happen on earth uh, is the great tribulation. And that's when we come to chapter 6, that's what we will pick up on uh, as this storm comes to earth that, that uh, these lightnings and thunderings announce in heaven in, in this scene that John sees. Now, as we come to the last part of chapter 4, verse number 6, John's going to continue describing some scenes that he's seen in the heavenly holiest of holies. And let me tell you this, going into this, this is some of the most difficult symbolism in the entire Bible to interpret. I mean, because John was seeing things that he had never seen before, things that we have never seen before, things that are impossible to fully describe and interpret in words. He's seeing images of an eternal heaven, images of an infinite and eternal God, and he's expressing these things as best as he can, and in some cases, he's using these symbols. And, and so we're going to be looking at some of these symbols today, things that I think are impossible to fully understand. We won't understand these things until we get to heaven, and we won't understand them then unless Jesus Christ himself explains them to us. Because we're going to see this the same way John saw it when we see it in heaven, and it's going to be so spectacular and so magnificent and so different from anything that we've ever seen that we're not going to be able to figure all of this out. And if you think today that I've figured it all out, you're right. <laughs> no, you're greatly mistaken. No commentator has figured out all, everything that you see here in the book of Revelation, and that's why you've got to be really careful when you look at these, uh, these uh, passages and you try to interpret these passages that uh, you try to figure out what you can about the passage and you don't try to stretch them out too far. First of all, we look for what? We look for the literal interpretation. Then we look for the symbolic or allegorical interpretation. There's a lot of that in the book of Revelation. Some people say it's all literal. No, it's not all literal. A lot of it is symbolic. And we'll see that even as we look at this throne of Jesus Christ. But So we're not going to understand all of these things fully. But we're going to take a shot at trying to figure these things out. And I'll tell you what we can understand when we're through with this. We can understand the application of these verses that God intends for all of us to, to receive today. And, and, and these, are, these are things that should change our life. They should change how we view ourselves in the light of who God is. And so let's pick up with the next image that, that uh, John shows us, and that's in verse number 6. And I'm just going to pick up on the first part of verse number 6 uh, where he says there, before the throne, he says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, can you just imagine that? This sea of glass like crystal. I can imagine. I was, Monday and Tuesday, Brenda and I went to Gulf Shores for a really short vacation. And uh, I was sitting there on the beach, and, it, and I had never seen the sea so calm. And I looked out over that sea, and it kind of reminded me of this sea of glass that you see that John speaks of here in, in uh, verse number 6. And it also reminded me of why I love so much going to the beach. You know why I love to go to the beach? I don't get on those, those parasails. I don't get on the, the, uh, any of the 
you know, any of the attractions in, in Gulf Shores. I don't go with any of that. I just sit on the beach. And you go there in November, and i got to tell you, you're the only person out there on the beach. And it's great. I don't want any umbrellas. I don't want any of that stuff. I just want to look out over the ocean. And the, the reason I like looking out over the ocean, because I get this sense of peace, this great sense of peace. And I think when John saw this breathtaking scene in heaven and he sees this sea like crystal, you know, I think, I think he was probably pretty nervous uh, as he was uh, visiting the very throne room of God. But he sees this crystal sea, this sea like crystal glass, and he gets this great sense of peace. And you, and you know what else you get when you go to the beach? You get a sense of the majesty of God and, and the majesty of his creation. You get a sense of how big he is and how little you are. And no doubt when John saw this sea that like, like crystal glass, I mean, no doubt he had that same sense of the majesty of God. It's the same feeling you get when you when you gaze at the stars through a telescope and you look out over those vast number of stars and all those infinite number of galaxies and that go on and on and on seemingly forever, and you get this, this feeling that, that who am I, as, as David says, that God is mindful of me? Who is, who is man that God, God is mindful of men in this vast, wonderful universe that he has made? And then, you know, you know, I'll tell you what else the, the, the feeling I get when I go to the beach. I get a sense of eternity. Because when you look out over the beach, you can go 30 miles out into the ocean, and you know what? All you see is ocean. And it seems to go on and on and on forever. How big is the, the sea of crystal glass? I got a hunch it goes on and on and on and on forever. And it speaks of the infinite majesty and the immortality of God. It speaks of the, the, the infinite uh, size of heaven that it just goes on and on and on forever. We'll never be able to explore all that God has, has made, all that God is. We'll never be able to figure out all of those things. But, you know, I think there's something else going on here too. I think there's some, some spiritual symbolism here that's, that's taking place. Besides this grand view that, that John saw, this, this glass this of, of crystal, I mean, this, this sea of crystal. I mean, there's something else going on here, and I, I think there's some spiritual application here because over in 1 Kings chapter 7, and you don't have to turn there, and 2 Chronicles chapter 4, Solomon, we're told there that Solomon made a laver for the temple. It was called the Sea of Brass. Do you remember that? And it was the largest thing in the temple. It was the largest thing you could possibly make and put in the temple. It was 30 uh, feet in diameter, and it was 15 feet tall. And so it was this giant laver. And we know that the labors in the temple were used for the washing of the priest, for those who were ministering in the temple. We're also told in Hebrews that the things in the earthly temple are shadows of the things that are truly in, in heaven. And so this sea of brass, no doubt, represents the sea of glass. And no doubt it has the same purpose, the sea of glass has the same purpose as the sea of brass. 
And what's that purpose? To wash the priest. Now, what is it that washes the priest? What is it that washes the priest? It's the word of God. That's what Paul says over Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. He says that the church is made holy by the washing of the water of the word of God. You're made holy by the Spirit through the washing of the word of God by the Spirit. And so when we study the word by the Spirit, we're being made clean. We're being made holy. We're, we're being changed into a new creature in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what this sea of, of uh, crystal glass is all about. It's a picture of the word of God. It's the word of God which gives us peace. Just like that ocean gave me peace Monday and Tuesday when I was looking out over that ocean, the sea of glass, this, the sea of brass, and, the, and this word of God gives us peace. Look, if you're having turmoil in your life and you're a born-again believer, I'll tell you right now, you're not in the word of God like you should be. Because when you get in the word of God and you believe God for all that God says in this book, you're going to find peace. And not only are you going to find peace, as you look through this word, it's through this word that we gaze upon the majesty of God. I mean, we're going to see, looking at this word today as we finish this text, we're going to look at the majesty of Jesus Christ. And it's only through the word. I mean, you might every once in a while have had a vision of heaven or a vision of the Lord, but that's, there's no way that you see the Lord like he truly is than through his word. We see him through his word. We see the majesty of God through his word. And it's through the word. It's through the word that we get a sense of eternity. You know, I feel sorry for this world that we live in. Most people think this is it. They think that you suck this life like an orange because this is it. This is all you get. But when I read my Bible, one of the things that happened to me when I first was born again, suddenly I realized that there truly is an eternity. And as you study this word, you learn more and more about eternity, and eternity becomes part of who you are. And you realize that you're not made as a temporal creature. You're made for eternity. Your soul has been created forever. And you get that through the word of God. And just like that sea of crystal glass goes on and on forever, so does the word of God. The word of God is infinite in its reach. It goes on. It never returns back to the Lord void. It has infinite power and infinite reach. All people have to do is open their hearts to this word. And this word goes out into the whole universe. And then pick up at some more of the scenes that John shows us in, at the end of verse number 6. Look at the end of verse number 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature, I'm going on to verse number 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings and were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day and night say, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Wow, those are some strange-looking creatures. They're some strange-looking beings. I mean, they have eyes all in the front and in the back. 
They have wings. One, one looks like a lion. One looks like a calf. One looks like a man, and the other looks like an eagle. And a lot of the people who exposit this say that these are the seraphim and cherubim that we see in Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. That's quite possible. Others say, I've heard several commentators or read several commentators who say that these creatures represent the creation. They represent all the living beings in the creation. The lion represents the wild beast. The calf represents the domesticated animals. The eagle represents the birds. And the man represents the crown of creation, which is the human being. There aren't any fish. There wasn't a fish with eyes and wings. So you wonder what happens to the fish. Well, when you get over to the end of Revelation, we're told in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea. There is no sea, and so you don't, there won't be any fish. If there's no sea, fish need water to live. So there won't be any fish. Well, there's a problem with this interpretation. There's a problem with interpreting these as angels, like some people do. There's a problem with that. Because it's very doubtful that these are creatures at all. And you, if you have the King James, it says beast. So these are, these are the living beast, the living creatures. But the phrase living creatures or living beast does not necessarily mean that they're creatures, that they've been created. The, na- the, 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 the phrase living creatures comes from one, one Greek word. It's the Greek word zoa, which we get our English word zoo. And all it means is the living ones, the living ones. And so, it's, so the word creature is not in the original text. It's the living ones. And let's read it again. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne were four living ones, full of eyes in the front and back. The first living creature, the first living one was like a lion, and the second living one like a calf. And the third living one had a face like a man, and the fourth living one was like a flying eagle. And the four living ones had each had six wings, and they were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day and night, crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if they're not created ones, and I'm going to make the case that they're not, then who are these creatures in the midst of the throne? Well, First of all, I want you to see, where are these creatures? I just said it. They're on the throne, they're in the midst of the throne, and they're all around the throne. Now think about that for a minute. Whose throne is this? This is the Lord's throne. Does anyone or any creature sit on the throne other than God? What's the answer to that? No. So I go along with those commentators who speculate that these four living beasts or four living creatures or these living ones are symbols of the attributes of God. And we're going to see this in just a minute. They're symbols of the attributes of the one who's sitting on the throne. Now, we've already seen seven lamps and seven spirits. There are seven lamps and seven spirits, and I believe John saw that. But they're symbolic. These are symbols that John sees. And what are they symbols of? The seven spirits and the seven lamps are symbols of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that these 
beast with these eyes and these wings and these various character faces, these various faces, are symbols of the attributes of God. And that makes perfect sense because the living ones, first of all, they're full of eyes. And when we see something full of eyes, what's that trying to tell us? That they can see everything, front and back, past, present, and future. They can see everything. Why can they see everything? Because Why can God see everything? Because he is omnipresent. He sees all. He's present in the past. He's present in the present. And he's present in the future. And so he sees everything. And if they see everything, even the future, then they know everything. If you see everything, if I can see what's in your heart, if I could look into your heart like Jesus Christ can look into your heart, I could truly see who you, you really are. And that would scare me because I, I find out things about people sometimes and, and, and it really bothers you because you thought you were seeing something in these people that, that wasn't who you were seeing. It turns out there were some very evil things in their heart. And, and, and they turn out doing some very, and we all do some evil things, but the people, some people that you think are really, really good people turn out to be very, very evil people. But let me tell you what, you don't fool the Lord. The Lord sees everything. He knows my every thought, and that just scares me. And that's why I'm always, oh, man, get that thought out of my head. And sometimes I think the devil throws these evil thoughts at us just to remind us of how, what scumbags we are and, and, and the Holy Spirit says, get that out of your mind. Get that out of your heart. And so God sees everything. And, and so because he sees everything, he knows everything. And that brings us to the attribute. We know he's omnipresent. He's also omniscient. He knows everything. And then you have this first beast, who is a lion. You have any trouble figuring that one out? Hey, who is Jesus? He, it, look, all you got to do is go to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, you see that Jesus is none other than, than the, the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5, 5, he's the Lion of Judah. What's a lion? When you think of a lion, what do you think of? You think of a beast that is ferocious. He's all-powerful. He's the most powerful beast in the creation of God. And so when you think of God and you think of Jesus, he is all-powerful. He is ferocious. He is mighty. And he rules, just as the lion rules over the jungle, the Lord rules over his creation. And that makes him omnipotent. So we get another attribute of God. And then the second beast, our living one, I would need to call it, the second is like a calf. He was like a calf. Get that? Like a calf. Now, a better translation of that word would be an oxen, or you could say a beast of burden. One who lives his life working and serving. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our Lord at all? How about Matthew 20, verse 28? The Son of Jesus himself said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Just like an oxen sets his face to the field that is about to be plowed, and he walks through that field with the plow on his back. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and set his face toward the cross so that he could die for you and I, so that he could serve many. 
so that he could serve us, so that he could save us. And so he's like this beast of burden. And then the third living one had a face like a man. Well, that certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus is a man. He became a man. He came to God Almighty, emptied himself of his glory, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself, gave up his glory, and came to this earth as a little babe in Bethlehem. Why did he do that? You know why God did that? Because God relates to his creation as a man. He relates to, to his universe. He relates to all the creatures in the universe. He relates to them as a man. And he re relates to the crown of his creation as a man. He relates to us as a man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to things, to the, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, he came here to be our priest, to relate to us, to have a relationship with us. Not only that, to save us as the suffering servant. And so, and so that speaks of his eminence. It speaks of God's involvement, that one of the great attributes of God is his eminence, the fact that he's involved in his creation. He's part, he became part of his creation when he took on flesh. And so he relates to his creation. He's every bit of man as you and I are human beings. And so he's eminent with his creation. But then the fourth living one that we see, he was like a flying eagle. What's an eagle do? He soars above everything else. And that's a picture of our Lord who soars above all things. And that speaks of his transcendence. I mean, the transcendence of God means that God is wholly other. Although he's part of our, uh, part of, although he became a man and took on flesh and relates to creation, he's wholly other than the creation. He's imminent with his creation, but he's also transcendent. He's way above all of us in his holiness, in his power, in, his, in, the, in the years of his life. He's, his goings forth are from everlasting. And so he's transcendent. He's holy, he's holy other. And that's why you go back to the text here. You see these living ones declare day and night and forever. Listen to what they say. Because he's like an eagle who soars above all. Holy, holy, holy. Friends, no one is holy, holy, holy but the Lord. We're all way below the Lord. He soars way above us in his holiness. But you know what the cool thing is? By his blood, he makes us holy. So he, we're made holy. And we receive holiness as a gift from the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. But he is holy. That's who he is. He's holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Who is this one? I mean, put all of this symbolism together, and who do we have? Who does it speak of? Well, let me tell you who it speaks of. He tells us right here. 
holy, holy, holy is who? The Lord God Almighty. He is holy. He's a man. He's the line of Judah. I mean, he's, he's uh, the ser suffering servant. He's the eagle who soars above us all. He's holy, holy, holy. And he is the Lord God Almighty. And who is the Lord God Almighty? They, they, cry, they tell us right here. These, these living ones tell us. God speaks of himself. He declares this through these symbols. He says, who was and is and is to come. Now, that phrase right there tells us that there is no doubt who this is on this throne. Who this is represented by these four symbols. Who this is who the living ones are crying out to, holy, holy, holy. It is none other than Jesus Christ. And, and if, you, if you still doubt that, flip back to Revelation chapter 1 and look down at verse number Eight, when Jesus was speaking to John. And listen to what he says. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, the Almighty God. Jesus declares that about himself, and these living ones on the throne of God declare that about Jesus too. And really that's him declaring that about himself. And when you see those four living ones, those four beasts, those four creatures, if you want to call them that, in heaven, they are simply the attributes of the one sitting on the throne. They, they tell us who Jesus truly is and that this is none other than Jesus Christ. And when we realize who he is, let me tell you what, when you see him on the throne, you don't have any problem doing this, but we need to be doing this now. When we see him for who he truly is, what should happen? The same thing that happens to these 24 elders should happen to us. Look at verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. He says, Whenever the living creatures or the living ones give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, and who the 24 elders represent? They represent the church, the priesthood of, of Jesus Christ. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. You alone are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's why. For you created all things. Got that? And for and by, I would say, for, and for your will, they exist and were created. You got that? Listen to this again. He says, you are worthy, you alone are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and for your will, or by your will, they exist and were created. Why do the elders cast their thrones at the feet of Jesus? Because, the Jesus? because Jesus is the one who is truly worthy. The one who is truly worthy to receive all honor and glory 
and power. The only one who is the Lion of Judah. The only servant king who died for the sins of this world. The only God who became man. The only eagle who by his divinity soars above us all. Holy, holy, holy. Almighty God is who this is. Whose goings forth are from everlasting to everlasting. And again, if you doubt that this is anybody else other than Jesus, look at this. Look at who he is. He's the creator of all things. That proves to us that this is Jesus on the throne. And when anybody else tries to tell you otherwise, they got to do all sorts of theological dances to go there. This is none other than Jesus Christ on this throne. Now, it almost gets a little bit strange because he's off the throne and on the throne. We're going to see as we get to chapter number 5. And so some people see two gods on this throne, but there's only one God, and it's none other than the Creator God. And who is the Creator God? None other than Jesus Christ. In him dwells all of the, the Godhead bodily. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in him. And so we see Jesus, the creator, on the throne. As John said in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He made everything. So if anybody tells you the Father made some of it or the Spirit made some of it, hey, they did through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the creator. Flip back with me over to Colossians. And this is a passage you're all familiar with. But go back to Colossians. And look in chapter number 1. <coughs> And look down in verse number 15. We'll pick up there. I mean, that's a great passage. If you ever lose your sight of who Jesus is, come back to Colossians chapter 1. He is, in verse number 15, he is the invisible. Of the, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's, that's the, 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 the one preeminent over all creation. Uh, for by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. You get that? How many of those things in the Greek? All things. All things. All things were created by him, visible and invisible. That means that demons were created by him. The devil was created by him. Who has power over the demons and who has power over the devil? Jesus Christ does. They are part of his creation. Don't let people fool you into thinking somehow that the devil is somehow co-equal with Jesus Christ. He's light years infinitely uh, different from Jesus Christ, infinitely lesser than Jesus Christ. He's nobody in the eyes of Jesus Christ. He is a puppet in the hands of Jesus Christ doing the bidding of Jesus Christ. And if he's after you, it's because God's allowing him to be after you, to straighten you out. If he's after me, the same reason. God allows us to be oppressed by demons to get us back to him. And so 
He's the creator of all things. By him all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or, or, I'm sorry, dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. Now watch this. This is where a lot of people go wrong. They were created for him. For him. Everything was created for him. And in verse number 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he, not the Pope, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And he has preeminence. That means that everything and everybody on this earth was created for the purposes of God. He created you. He created me. He created the universe in which we live. He created the new me. Don't you get that? The new me isn't your creation. The new me is God's creation. You can't recreate yourself. That's where Nicodemus struggled when Jesus said, you must be born again. I mean, how can I go back in the womb and be born again? You can't, Nicodemus. I have to do it for you. I have to make you a new creation. And all things were created through him and for him. That means even the new creation is created for him. And here's where so many people who call themselves Christians go wrong. If the truth be known, deep down inside of a lot of us, we have a hard time grasping the fact that we exist for him. You know, we exist to honor him, to worship him, and to serve him. Can you say that about your life? Is that who you exist for today? To honor him, to worship him, to serve him. If you don't see yourself as existing for those reasons, you've lost your way. You've lost your way. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. I love that movie. Ratatouille. And in the movie Ratatouille, this nasty food critic named Anton Ego, Egon, what I forget his name, Ego, I think is his name, Anton Ego, he goes to Gusteau's to write this nasty review against them. And while he's there, the waiter comes up to him and he asks him, What would you like to eat? He says, I'll tell you what I'd like. I like a little fresh perspective. That's what I want, a little fresh perspective. You know what? That's what we need as Christians. We need a fresh perspective. A fresh perspective of who we are in the light of who God is. We need to see God on the throne. God is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, and not ourselves. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. We weren't saved so God could serve us. 
We were saved so we could serve God. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus did come to die for us, to serve us on the cross, to give his life for us. And what a great God, what a great friend, what a great master he is. But friends, things have changed. He's on his throne. He's returned to his glory. He's not your servant. You're his servant. And we get this idea that he exists to serve us. I hear preachers saying that. and It it makes my skin crawl when I hear that. That God just exists to bless me and get me the things that I want. I I almost named a name and I didn't name it, but you would name several names in that case. But I got to tell you, we'll say theologically we don't believe that or we hate that, somebody saying that, but sometimes we treat God that very way. As if we're, we're, if he doesn't bless us, we're mad at him. If he doesn't do what we want him to do, we're mad at him. Because he exists really deep down inside. We think he exists to serve us. We exist to serve him. And let me tell you what, you're never going to find, we're never going to find peace. We're never going to find joy until we get the right perspective, the right perspective of who we are in in the sight of the Lord. And these elders had the right perspective. They understood that no one was worthy but the Lord of glory, honor, and all power. And so what do they do? They cast their crowns before his feet. And if you want to find peace and joy, then you've got to cast your crown before the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to give him the throne of your soul. And until you do that, you're never going to have peace. You're never going to have joy. You're never going to find your way. You're never going to have eternal purpose. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's it mean to lose your life? I'll tell you what it means. It means to cast your crown. To cast your crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. What crowns am I talking about? I'm talking about the crown of self-will. The crown of self-determination. I did it my way. You hear this? Sinatra sing, a lot of people in this world, a lot of people who call themselves Christians sing that song. I did it my way. I'm going my way. I'm doing my thing. And and man, when I get in trouble, I'm going to call on the Lord because the Lord's there to serve me. That's the wrong perspective. Self-will, self-determination, self-righteousness. Oh man, I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to do well and I'm going to become the kind of person I'm going to be. I'm finally going to change my life. You can't do it. You've got to cast that crown of self-righteousness down at his feet and say, Lord, you give me the righteousness that I need. You're the one who's holy, holy, holy. You are holy, holy, and you can make me holy, but I can't make myself holy. And, and then, I, you can sum it all up, you've got to cast the crown of self-worship. You've got to cast that at his feet. We've got a, one word for that. What's it called? Pride. Pride. We are all full of of pride. And until we cast that pride at his feet and we recognize who we are in the sight of God, until we do that, we will never find meaning in life. We will never find peace. We will never find joy until we humble ourselves and give the Lord the glory and honor that he deserves.
Then what happened? Well, you know, I believe with all my heart when those elders cast those 24 thrones down at the feet of Jesus, and this is symbolism we're seeing here, he picks those thrones, when he casts those crowns at the feet of Jesus, he picks those crowns up and put them back, puts them back on their heads. And the reason he can do that is because when you reach a point where you have the right perspective about who you are in reference to God, that's when you're truly worthy. That's when you're truly ready to wear a crown. That's when you're truly ready to serve the Lord with victory. Until we're ready to do that, we're spinning our wheels. We're wasting our time. You're sitting on the throne of your life, you're going to be miserable. We're going to stay miserable if we're sitting on the throne of our life. But we lose that life, we lose that throne, we lose that crown. Christ puts a crown back on our head. And we're ready to serve him. We're ready to live a life with eternal value. Isn't that what you want? We don't want to waste the years we have left. We're living in dark, dark times and we have not much time left. So get a right perspective. You all need a right perspective. He's holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. The one who is and was and is to come. Worship him. Father, we just thank you for your word. and We thank you for this grand picture of just who you are and all of your attributes. How infinitely greater and holier and powerful you are than all of us. Lord, we just ask that, that you give us a right perspective, and we only get that right perspective when we see you as you truly are. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to have that vision. Lord, bless us. Bless us with the power of your Holy Spirit. Make our lives count. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, and for his death for us, we honor you, Lord. We praise you. You truly are worthy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.